Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, University of Oxford, and Kantar, the marketing insights and consulting company. In each episode, we'll have a frank discussion with industry experts to help brands and business leaders navigate the changing landscape of marketing and hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions along the way. I'm Jane Bloomfield. I'm Head of Business Development at Kantar. I'm Andrew Stephen, the L'Oreal Professor of Marketing and Associate Dean of Research at the Said Business School. So today... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're talking about the narrative gap and how senior executives in corporations feel they're misunderstood by the outside world. We're also going to focus on how to solve this problem. So we're joined today by Steve Marinker, who is head of corporate at PowerScore. Steve, you've done some research around the narrative gap companies believe they have. Can you tell us about that, please? I guess the genesis of this project is reflecting on the almost 30 years or so I've been consulting um, or providing consultancy services to CEOs, chairmen uh, and other um, members of executive committees. If there's one plaintive cry that I hear more than any other, it's that businesses believe that they are not properly understood. So you often hear people say, gosh, you know, if only people understood our business model, life would be so much better. If only people understood how complex our operating environment is, life would be so much better. If only people understood the quality of our people. So there are all these dimensions where there seems to be a huge frustration about uh, the, the, the lack of understanding, the lack of appreciation, the lack of acknowledgement. And we wanted to understand this. We wanted to put some dimensions behind the, the anecdotes. How misunderstood are businesses? Um, now, this research was conducted in the UK uh, amongst uh, 100 uh, UK domiciled businesses, but I, I think the insights are probably broadly applicable to other markets. So what we have as a result of uh, this research, which we uh, did in conjunction with Cantar um, Millwood Brown, is an insight into how misunderstood British businesses believe themselves to be. It doesn't tell us how misunderstood they actually are. That could be the second phase of this project. 
but it does give us a good insight into the uh, kind of um, psychological condition, if you like, of UK boardrooms. How misunderstood do they think they are? Well, when we were constructing the research, so the, the first thing that we needed to do was to identify the, the dimensions, you know, in what ways might businesses feel misunderstood. And working with Kantar, we, we arrived at seven different dimensions. Now, you could argue that they aren't the right dimensions or you might want to uh, re-articulate them, but we felt it was quite a good starting point. So I, I, I will read them because I think it's quite you know, important to understand the lenses through which we were conducting the research. We looked at, in no particular order, uh, the context and dynamics of your market, the strengths of your operating model, your equity growth story, your, your story for investors, the features and benefits of your products and services, your employer value proposition, values and ethics and principles of your organisation, and then finally contribution to society, for example economic contribution, jobs, that sort of thing. And for each of those dimensions, we asked people in the research to think about the relevant audience for each one. So if you're thinking about equity growth story, then you're thinking about institutional investors, fund managers, uh, sell-side analysts, financial media. If you're thinking about the, the features and benefits of your products, then you're thinking about a completely different audience, about customers and consumers. And for each of those dimensions, we asked our respondents to say, on a, on a scale, how well understood, or otherwise, they felt their organisations to be. And before we started the research, we decided to call the whole enterprise the narrative gap. And I think what we discovered is that there isn't, there isn't a narrative gap, it's more like a narrative chasm. There is this huge disparity between the story that businesses want to tell and the story that's heard, or just in some cases, just not heard at all. And who did you talk to within the organisations? They were all members of Exco's, so, so not, not main board members, but they were all executive committee members in a variety of different roles, whether it's operations or finance or HR or commercial or whatever it happens to be. So obviously that gives you a variety of different perspectives and some individuals will be more appraised of certain dimensions and certain audiences than others. But our feeling was that by having a relatively large sample, a, a hundred uh, organisations, the overall robustness of, of the research would be, uh, would be ensured and we'd have some really good, useful insights that we can use and apply in our, in our consultancy. And what were the highlights then that, that came out as you mentioned the seven dimensions? Well, I think on all of the dimensions, we discovered that it was, like I say, more, more of a narrative chasm than a narrative gap. I think what we were particularly surprised to find is that the equity growth story, that is to say the story for investors, and the strengths of operate, your operating model, these were the least well understood, at least as far as our respondents were concerned, the least well understood aspects of the corporate story. And that, that's quite surprising because that's probably the part of the story that from a, from a corporate point of view, you spend most time trying to tell, trying to instill into your audiences. But according to our research, it's where there's the greatest frustration, perhaps that's the best way of putting it, the greatest frustration in being able to land that story in a really powerful way. But I don't think any of the dimensions performed particularly well. And indeed, number of the, we also looked at audiences. So, you know, uh, how well understood do you feel by you are by your investors, by the media, by your consumers, by your own people, by communities? All of the uh, all of these dimensions scored very, very low. Now, what this might just tell us is that there's a kind of paranoia, <laughs> you know, uh, in the boardroom, uh, and that the real picture may be maybe somewhat different. That that. I think will be phase two of the narrative gap research to understand 
how well understood or otherwise businesses really are, but there is certainly a sense of being misunderstood and a deep frustration about it. It's interesting. I mean, you had me wondering about, you know, is it just that uh, executives or ex-co's really want tight control, and so they they want it, you know, almost to the to the letter in terms of how they're understood by outside stakeholders, and and if there's any deviation from that, they're like, oh gosh, there's a chasm. Um, but still, I think I, I'm curious about um, where the gaps coming from. Maybe um, that the reality is different from the perception, and I think we are, you know, we were very acutely aware that there is a story that businesses want to tell, a version of their truth that they cleave to with, you know, uh, with great enthusiasm that others may not share. And of course, you know, particularly when you talk to journalists, they say, no, no, uh, I understand this business really, really well. And I understand their market really, really well. The fact that my understanding and my interpretation isn't the same as theirs doesn't mean I misunderstand. It means it's different. I have a different perspective. So I think we're very aware that um, there is a kind of an idealized narrative that most businesses have, which is you know, uh, something they find very difficult to, to, to sort of give up or to cede any ground on. But there are other perspectives that, 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 might, that might be legitimate as well. So I think we, we were very aware of that, uh, of that reality. That's why we wanted the second phase of research, to actually talk to stakeholders and, and, and get that perspective. But in terms of what's driving this narrative gap or narrative chasm, what our research said, it, you know, we discussed a whole range of different drivers of, of misunderstanding. The one that um, was cited most frequently is, is this idea of complexity. A lot of respondents felt that they operate in a, in a very complex environment, they have a very complex business model, and it's very difficult to communicate it, it's very difficult to understand it, it's very difficult to engage with it. So that was probably the single biggest perceived driver of misunderstanding, but there were others. For example, lack of resource. So you know, we just don't have the resources that we need to be able to conduct you know, a, a, the kind of communications program, the kind of communication strategy that would close the gap. There were other drivers. For example, some uh, respondents felt that there was, a, there was a legacy issue which made it very, very difficult for them to move forward. They were associated with some great crime in, in ancient history or bad practice. And every time this business's name was mentioned in public circles, that's the only thing anyone ever wanted to talk about. And they found it very, very difficult to move the narrative beyond that ancient history. So a whole range of different uh, drivers that came up in the research. But this idea of complexity, that, that was the single most cited reason uh, or per per perceived reason for there being this lack of understanding. And was that lack of, or sorry, that complexity, was that seen across B2B, B2C brands? Did you look at a different group or sectors within that? So I think it's pretty worth saying that when you break this data down by sector, you get to some quite small groups, and therefore the robustness of it might, might start to diminish somewhat. But if you were to do a sector analysis, and we looked at seven sectors, we looked at TMT, financial services, health and public services, consumer goods, utilities and energy, and travel and tourism. And the sector which felt most, most misunderstood, consumer goods. And I think it felt particularly misunderstood in terms of its values and its ethics, its sustainability and environment, environmental performance. And in consumer goods, that, that's a big deal. You know, you're very, very exposed in those fields on those kinds of dimensions. So consumer goods was you know, 
where we found the biggest perceived narrative gap. So consumer goods seem to have the biggest chasm and uh, you mentioned that this is about maybe s they're trying to get across stories of sustainability and, and, and those sorts of things. Where are they doing that well? I think, so this is where they kind of, I think, as it were, leave, leave the research behind and just draw on personal experience. Every business will have a list of proof points. They'll have you know, a long kind of laundry list of reasons why they are brilliant organizations. But who's going to engage with that? Who's going to, first of all, who's going to give you a platform for you just to spout off 17 key messages about what a wonderful organization you are? And even if someone is foolish enough to give you a platform to do that, wh why would anyone listen? Why would anyone, my old boss used to say, why would I care, why would I share? People don't engage with laundry lists. I think the trick here, the trick's probably the wrong word because it sounds like it's just a stunt, but I think the, the right strategy here is to tell a specific story, to find a lens through which you can draw your audiences, whether they're consumer audiences, investors, your own people, whoever it happens to be, you can draw them into your story. So let me give you a specific example uh, from my own back catalogue. Well, I'll talk to you about Domino's Pizza, uh, which was a client I had for a, a number of years uh, in, a, in a previous life. So what we do with Domino's is we identified one area in particular of concern, which was employment, and specifically how they're going to recruit enough people into their business post-Brexit. So what we did is we created a platform called Team Skills, where we made all of our learning and development and training materials open source, just available to anybody. So as a school leaver or someone early in your career, you get the opportunity to learn from Domino's about all these, these um, leadership skills like conflict resolution and goal setting and time management uh, and start your journey into leadership. So suddenly you're having a completely different conversation about fast food and employment. It's not about low wages and temporary employment and zero hours contracts. You're having a conversation about leadership and leadership skills and training and development and career opportunities and the pathway to becoming a franchisee. It's a completely different conversation. And that then leads you into a broader conversation about the values of the organization more broadly. So start specific, draw people into a conversation, and then you have permission to land all the, you, 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 get, you get to your laundry list that way. I'll give you another example. Uh, again, it's a UK example, but I think it's instructive. And it's the supermarket chain Iceland. Uh, and if you're not listening in the UK, then Iceland is a frozen food supermarket. It competes at the, the budget end of the spectrum. They did something, I think, brilliantly earlier this year, which is they became the first supermarket chain to ban palm oil from its own brand products. Palm oil, I'm sure everyone knows, uh, yeah, highly controversial. So they took a lead to become the first supermarket chain to ban palm oil from its own supply chain. But this wasn't really a story about palm oil. This was a story about the values of Iceland. And it was about reappraisal. It was about saying, hey, you may have a view about us as a um, down at heel budget brand, but actually think about what we're doing here and think about our values as an organization, think about the way that we care about food, think about the way, think about what this says about our attitude to the supply chain, and it starts to challenge those perceptions, but through a very, very narrow door. Uh, and when you have a narrow door, you can create the kind of interest and the kind of traction you simply cannot get by standing on a platform and saying, 
Let me tell you 19 things about our organization that are wonderful. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And I think that fits really nicely with some research we've seen at Cantar, where we've looked how people expect companies to to sort of use their power you know in a responsible way um so some Cantar futures uh research that was done last year um was around how much people wanted brands to have a clear point of view um, and stand for something and so we saw that in fact for millennials and centennials this is incredibly important so you've got over 60 percent of that group saying this is something that i absolutely need to see from companies so the key i think from from what you're saying is is those specific examples and stories. So rather than starting really broadly yeah. and trying to, to over-communicate in all sorts of areas, is, is to pick opportunities where you can demonstrate those values well, the, and beliefs. The, the analogy I always use, and, and anyone who knows me who's listening is gonna start rolling their eyes because I, I, I use this analogy all the time, but it's a bit like being at a cocktail party and you want to, uh, you want to make a speech and there's a hubbub, people are talking, so what do you do? You get a glass, you get a spoon, you go ding, ding, ding. Everyone quietens down and then you can start talking. Th that's really what I'm talking about. It, it's it's the, the communications equivalent of that ding, ding, ding moment. You need to capture people's attention. And through the kinds of channels that, that, that I work with, media channels, social media channels, uh, platforms, you need to tell a story. You need to tell uh, something which is specific and relevant and interesting and not just rely on a much broader corporate narrative that's got you know all of your key messages beautifully arranged and in the absolutely the right order but i'm i'm not really into i don't really i don't really want to hear your corporate narrative i don't want to hear anyone's corporate narrative i i make i make a living by writing corporate narratives okay <laughs> but i don't really want to hear them what i want to hear is okay the, the corporate narrative is really i think is for internal consumption it's so that everyone within the organization understands what that organization stands for, what its journey is, what its strategy is. The, the, the key thing from a communications point of view is to translate that narrative into platforms, into things that have a chance of reaching your consumers, engaging, or not your consumers, your audiences, reaching your audiences, engaging them, and then drawing them back into the broader story. And that's a bit I think businesses find so hard to do. I think most businesses can write their corporate narrative fairly easily but then translating it into communications assets, like the two examples I just gave you, um, that's, that's a lot harder. And I think one of the reasons it's hard is because there is a natural inbuilt caution within a lot of organizations. 
you know, who don't want to take risks naturally. You know, corporate communications, unlike consumer communication, is quite recessive and cautious and slow. And you know, if one eyebrow is going to be raised in arch surprise over there, then I won't do it. You get a lot of that. That's the thing you've got to try and overcome, I think, if you're going to have a chance of using these channels to tell your story effectively. So I mean, my, my personal background, I spent 25 years or so of my life primarily involved in consumer communication. And as I got older and bolder and fatter, I thought, you know what, I probably need to be, <laughs> you know, migrate my career <laughs> into the corporate space because you know, who's going to want someone you know, like me running their consumer communications? But my, my mission, my personal mission in life is to bring the enthusiasm, the ambition of consumer communication and apply that to corporate comms because it needs it. You know, it do needs you, that. Do you think uh, that, that some of the organisations you spoke to or organisations in general would acknowledge that they have a challenge and that, that perhaps they have a problem in how they communicate and how they promote understanding? Yes, yeah. uh, I, I, I would. Certainly the people we spoke to uh, as part of this research uh, complained about, a, first of all, lack of resource. You know, you've got to have the people to be able to do this. But we also asked organisations um, how brave they were, how brave they felt. Because you know, unless you're prepared to take some... Every time you say anything in the public domain, there's a risk. You know, anything you say in any forum could end up leading the BBC News. right? So we wanted to understand how brave, how risk-averse are the organisations in our sample. And what we found was, it was a one to 10 score. So if you, if you scored your organisation 10 out of 10, then super brave. If you scored a one out of 10, then super risk averse. So 9% of our sample rated themselves 10 out of 10. I mean, m maybe that's quite high. I don't know. Maybe, you know, it's doesn't, it's doesn't yeah. feel that high, yeah. does it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it kind of, it, it, it peaked around the midpoint, it picked around six, um, and you know, a number of organisations felt that they were right at the other end of the scale and, and, and entirely risk averse. So what we deduce from this is that um, certainly the businesses in our sample probably need to consider how they might become a bit more, a bit braver and a bit more embracing of risk, because unless you take a risk, then you've got no chance of a reward. I think it's quite interesting, actually, that people weren't brave in answering the bravery question. Um, <laughs> anyway, good, good point. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> take the middle of the yeah, scale. Exactly. Yeah, just yeah. you know, I'm going to go yeah, on a five. It's, it's, it's <laughs> seven out of ten. Could do better. I mean, I, I wonder. I mean, sort of coming back to what you're talking about, basically specific stories. It, it, it's, it's related to some research we've been doing at Oxford as well around sort of this framework we call marketing with purpose. But that a piece of that is obviously a broader view of who the stakeholders are, and, and you've talked about that broader view as telling specific stories, I think, is, is related to our perspective, which is about um, solving problems and, 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 and showing that you're solving problems. And it actually also made me think that it's, it's one thing, and I'm curious to hear what you think, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, here's our story, and you know, like the example of Domino's or the example of Iceland were really quite illustrative, but I think it, to take that to the next step, it's quite interesting to think about then measuring against that. Um, and so if we're doing, you know, let's think um, more hypothetically, if, I don't know, if the, if the mission is to change people's lives in some way, 
and we can come up with great case studies and great examples and stories and build nice websites or social media content that, that you know, illustrate how the corporation is changing these employees' lives, for example, their customers' lives or whoever. I think then taking that a step further and saying, well, if, if we actually want to tell those stories, we should bundle that up into how we measure things. Oh, well, I think you're 100% right. Um, but it only becomes, for my money, meaningful when, it is ex when there's risk, uh, when there's skin in the game. So all businesses, all listed businesses, uh, are obliged to identify a series of KPIs that they report on in their annual reports. And increasingly, you'll find these KPIs extend beyond financial metrics and they will embrace so social performance. If you have a purpose about some, some variant of making the world better and pretty much all corporate purposes are some variant some of making variant. the world better. Enriching lives. There's a whole other po whole podcast there on, on, <laughs> on purpose <laughs> statements. Um, but whatever it is, unless executive remuneration is in some way connected to that purpose, then I think it's pretty meaningless, frankly. Uh, purpose statements, if they're not tied to something you know, truly meaningful for the organisation, if there isn't a reward for achieving the purpose and a, um, uh, you know, a, a consequence for not, then they, they are suboptimal. We, we know from uh, Brandsy at Cantor that purposeful positioning is a really key and important value um, growth driver. So we've done some analysis over 12 years where we looked at how brands with a perceived strong purpose have grown versus those with a weak or middling purpose and we see that brands with a strong purpose have grown by over 175% in that 12 year period. Now those with a weaker purpose have still grown, they've grown 70% so there's something to be said that you, you can grow but you will not grow as quickly as you will if you have that strong purpose so I think it's, a, it's an interesting concept to see how do we build that into financial remuneration and, and target setting for, for companies moving forward. We do a lot of work with clients trying to help them identify what is meaningfully different about their organisation, not just different but meaningfully different. How, what, what does this mean for me either as a consumer or as an employee or as an investor or whoever it happens to be. So there's complexity for organisations, they are misunderstood, they, they have you know a lack of resources. In, in your opinion, if there was one piece of advice you were giving them, what would you be telling them to concentrate on? If there's one way an organisation can draw their audiences into a complex story, it is, it's to start simple. And there's no better place to do that than with a characteristic that they believe makes them special or differentiated. And so one of the things we did in our research was to try to understand, you know, is there one thing, is there one dimension of your corporate story that you're most frustrated that you can't get across? And it was quite interesting to look at the results because there was a very clear bias towards one of the dimensions, which was the quality of their people. You know, people, or, or the people we spoke to, were, were most frustrated that they weren't able to land how brilliant their human capital is. Uh, and why that makes them different. And that's true of service organisations, but it's also true of manufacturing organisations. It wasn't sector specific, but this idea of being a people business and having a human capital advantage 
which came across very, very strongly, and the inability to land that was particularly frustrating. So I think if you can find a way of turning your people into a communications asset, and in doing that, drive differentiation, then you won't go far wrong. You've been listening to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School and Kantar. Find more episodes and related content at uk.kantar.com or at sbs.oxford.edu. Thank you.